very good morning to you all. It truly is a pleasure, a blessing, and a privilege to be here with you this Sunday morning, this Lord's Day. We are now reaching, as it were, the climax of our worship, which is to hear from God himself. So if you would, please take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We'll actually be in Mark 14, Mark 14, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. Mark 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the living God. Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, you are worthy. You alone are worthy. You alone are worthy of all glory, honor, praise, and love. You alone are worthy of more love to thee. Lord, our prayer for this morning is very simple. Lord, this morning we would ask as we open your word, would you stir our affections for Jesus? Would you stir our affections for your son? Would you spur us on to more and more devotion to him? Lord, our prayer is that we would love Jesus more because he is worthy. We pray in the most precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In the mid-20th century, there were two young, gifted evangelists who came onto the scene at the same time. They were called the Gold Dust Twins. 
One of the Goldust twins was named Billy Graham. The other was called Charles Templeton. By all accounts, Charles Templeton was the better preacher of the Goldust twins. He was effective, handsome, brilliant. In 1946, the National Association of Evangelicals gave Charles Templeton the award Best Used of God. The two of them even went on preaching tours. They even went to Europe. They preached in England, Scotland, Ireland, Sweden, and other countries. In the mid-1950s, Charles Templeton was given a weekly television program on NBC and CBS to preach to thousands of American households. Across the US, Charles Templeton preached to up to 20,000 people a night across the country. Charles Templeton overshadowed Billy Graham. He was the better preacher, the better speaker. He was the more gifted man, and according to evangelicals, best used of God. In 1957, Charles Templeton declared himself an agnostic. He left the ministry. He became a politician, journalist, broadcaster. In 1957, he signed off on his apostasy with a book entitled, Farewell to God. That was the period. Now this story from church history as told by John MacArthur illustrates for us this morning a very important concept, a very important truth, a tremendously important reality. When it comes to Jesus Christ, there are only two responses. There are only two paths to take. There are only two options from which to choose. You either follow him or you flee from him. You either love him or whether or not you say it, you hate him. Either devotion or rebellion. The cross of Christ is the dividing line of all humanity. As Jesus said, you are either with me or against me. So I begin this morning by asking, which path are you on? Which road are you taking? Which option are you choosing? The psalmist in Psalm 86 verse 11 says, Teach me your way, Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. That's what God wants. God wants an undivided heart. God wants, nay, God demands and deserves a heart that is united in its love for him. God demands and deserves a prioritized love, a singular affection devoted to his glory. And that's exactly what our passage before us this morning illustrates. Now, before we jump into our text, I'd like to set the context. In Mark 14, we are in the Passion Week, the week of Jesus' suffering. We have entered the final week of Jesus' life. Gethsemane, Gabbatha, and Golgotha are just around the corner. Calvary is beckoning. We are drawing closer and closer, nearer and nearer, to the Holy of Holies in Mark's Gospel, the inner place of sacrifice, the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. 
We are watching history unfold in the shadow of the cross. And that's because death, the death of Christ, is the permeating theme of our passage. Death casts its shadow over these 11 verses. In verses 1 and 2, the religious elite are plotting to murder Jesus. In verses 3 through 9, the worshipful woman is preparing Jesus for burial. And in verses 10 and 11, Judas is betraying Jesus unto death. In a literary sense, we are approaching the climax of Mark's gospel. In a historical sense, we are approaching the climax of salvation history. Now a word about the chronology of this passage, which is very, very important to understand. On Friday of this week, on Friday of Passion Week, Jesus Christ will be lifted up on a cross. He will be hung, suspended between heaven and earth, and he will drink the cup of God's wrath for us. But in Mark 14, verse 1, we arrive to Wednesday of Passion Week. Two days before the cross, two days before Calvary. Notice in verses 1 and 2, the chief priests and scribes are meeting together to plot. They are seeking to kill the Savior. Then in verses 10 and 11, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, goes to the chief priest to betray him to them. Now when did this happen? This happened on the same day. This happened on the same day of this week. Both of these events happen on Wednesday of Passion Week. So on Wednesday of this week, the chief priests and Judas meet together to kill the Savior. But against this backdrop of utter wickedness in verses 3 through 9, Mark drops this story of simple unabashed, undivided devotion to Christ. Now, when did this happen? Well, John, in the parallel passage, gives us the timeline. John gives us the chronology. In John 12, verse 1, John says this occurred six days before the Passover. This means this event happened on Saturday night before Passion Week. On Saturday night, before Jesus even entered Jerusalem at all. This is Saturday night before Palm Sunday. So verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11 occur on Wednesday at the same time. But verses 3 through 9 are a flashback to Saturday night. They are out of chronological order. Why? Why would Mark do this? Why would Mark take the events of Wednesday and interrupt them with something that happened on Saturday? For contrast, for comparison, for emphasis. Verses 3 through 9 stand as one of the greatest displays of love to Christ ever in salvation history. And verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11 bracket it, they bookend it, with two of the greatest displays of hatred to Christ ever in salvation history. 
the goodness of verses 3 through 9 is sandwiched by the wickedness of verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11. This is the climax of love and hate. This is the climax of devotion and rebellion juxtaposed together. So let's see that this morning. Our passage, Mark 14, 1 through 11, illustrates two contrasting responses to the polarizing person of Jesus Christ. This passage before us shows two diametrically opposed responses to the Lord Jesus. First, let's see, the climax of rebellion. The climax of rebellion, verses 1 and 2. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now here we find ourselves on Wednesday of Passion Week, two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover, of course, was a time of remembrance of God's delivery of Israel from the slavery of Egypt. It was symbolic for the deliverance of God's people from the slavery of sin. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was symbolic for the necessary removal of sin. Jewish tradition tells us that during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Jews were to go through their entire home, and they were to remove any leaven, any yeast that they could find in the home, which is symbolic for the removal and cleansing of sin from their lives. So on the cusp of these two festivals, the religious elite of Israel call a meeting. Matthew, in the parallel passage, tells us that they met secretly at the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, this wasn't just any meeting. This isn't men's Bible study or men's barbecue. This isn't together for the Torah conference. This isn't care group. This is a meeting specifically for murder. They are meeting for conspiracy. They were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. They were actively, purposefully seeking to concoct a plan to arrest him and to kill him. The chief priests and scribes didn't kill Jesus in a moment of passion, in a moment of rage. No, it was much worse. This is premeditated conspiracy to commit first-degree, cold-blooded murder. Obviously, they thought this through because they knew they had to do it by stealth. They had to do it cunningly, craftily, with guile. They couldn't do it out in the open because of the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. They knew that Jesus was very popular. He had done miracles. He had healed the sick. He had fed the masses. And so they wanted to save face. So they meet together secretly to devise a plot to kill him. So here we are on this fateful day. Imagine it with me. Outside, on the streets of Jerusalem, you can hear all the noise, the clamor, the laughter, the joy, the festivities. The population of Jerusalem would swell during the festival seasons from 50,000 people to 250,000 people. The population would grow by five times almost overnight. 
And people are coming from all over Israel to celebrate the Passover, a time of feasting. So during the Passover, it was a time of reunion. People are seeing each other. They, they haven't seen each other for a long time. Hey, friend. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. I haven't seen you forever. And they give each other hugs, kisses. There's laughter in the streets of Jerusalem. There is joy in the streets of Jerusalem. But with all that noise going on outside, the religious elite are meeting secretly together inside. They meet together in a back room, the lights are dimmed, they speak in hushed tones as they seek to devise a plot to kill the Savior. We have a secret meeting to devise a secret plot to secretly kill Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you this. Should we find this shocking? Should we find this shocking? Yes, absolutely, we should find this shocking. This should be revolting to us. These are the religious leaders of the entire nation of Israel. These were the spiritual leaders of the entire country. These were the men that were supposed to teach and model God's word. These were the men that everybody was following, that everybody looked up to, and here they are, seeking to murder somebody. This should be shocking to us, brothers and sisters. Sometimes familiarity breeds complacency. We know this story so well. We've read it so many times. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chief priests, we know they hated Jesus. The scribes, of course they wanted to kill him. We know that so well. Tell me something I haven't heard before. But brethren, we must understand the gravity of this. This should be absolutely shocking. Because the chief priests and scribes were spiritual leaders of the entire nation of Israel. This would be like America's greatest Christian leaders devising a plot for murder. So hypothetically speaking, just hypothetically, wouldn't we be amazed, just hypothetically, can you tell this is hypothetical? Wouldn't we be shocked if John Piper, John MacArthur, Mark Dever, Ligon Duncan, Steve Lawson, Al Mohler, and C.J. Mahaney all secretly met together specifically to kill someone, we would be shocked. We would be disgusted. We would be revolted. We would be astonished. This is no less than shocking, brethren. So as these chief priests and scribes meet together in a back room with the lights dimmed. A knock comes on the door. And they all pause. They stop talking. And they look up. They wait anxiously to see who it is. As the tension in the room builds, as the awkwardness crescendos, out of the darkness and into the room walks Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. He makes their conspiracy easy. He goes specifically with the express purpose of betrayal. Now Judas is identified as one of the twelve. This emphasizes his treachery. 
This wasn't another of Jesus' enemies. This wasn't some random guy off the street like an assassin or a hitman. This was one of the friends of Jesus, one of the followers of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Judas tasted the bread when Jesus fed the 5,000. Judas drank the wine when Jesus turned water into wine. Judas was in the boat when Jesus calmed the wind and the waves. Judas saw with his own two eyes the people that Jesus had raised from the dead. This is Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. They did not approach him. He approached them. And then comes the bitterest line in all of the gospel of Mark. Verse 11. And when they heard it, they rejoiced. All translations fall short on this word. Most translations say, when they heard it, they were glad. The NIV gives the closest rendering. When they heard it, they were delighted. But the word Cairo is much more bitter and ironic than that. When they heard it, they rejoiced. They laughed. They clapped their hands. They would have danced. They threw a party, a party to celebrate the murder of God's son. They rejoiced over the murder of Jesus Christ. They rejoiced. They celebrated. This is bitter to the taste. And they promised to give him money. Matthew 26, 15 says that he agreed to do it for 30 pieces of silver. Exodus, 31, Exodus 21, 32 says that 30 pieces of silver is the price of a slave. In today's wages, 30 pieces of silver would be equivalent to approximately five weeks worth of income. That's a little more than two paychecks worth. Would you kill your best friend for two paychecks? Jesus loved Judas like a familiar friend. Judas sold Jesus like a slave. Mark writes, so from that moment on, he sought an opportunity to betray him. He watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas plotted and planned and waited and watched for an opportunity to let his secret rebellion come out. It was only a matter of time before his secret rebellion made itself known. You see, brothers and sisters, this account is an account of hypocrisy. Bottom line, that's what this is. This is hypocrisy. This story is thick with hypocrisy. It is dripping with hypocrisy. The religious elite of Israel who look oh so good on the outside, they are seeking to plot and plan a murder. And they're doing it during the festival season, the time of Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread. They do it during a special time of cleansing from sin, of the remembrance of delivery from the slavery of sin when they should have been going through their homes and in their hearts, removing any leaven of sin, any trace of sin, they were seeking to plot and plan the most heinous sin in the history of the world. 
Judas Iscariot. Now he is the epitome of hypocrisy. Judas is a Latinized version of his real name, Judah. Judah is his Hebrew name. Brothers and sisters, do you know what Judah means? It means praise. Praise. Can you taste the irony? Can you taste the hypocrisy? Judas, one of the twelve, looked just like the other twelve apostles. Followers of Jesus, praising Jesus. But deep down inside, Judas hated Jesus. He wanted to be away from Jesus. He wanted to rebel against Jesus. It seems complicated, but it's not. All of these characters have one thing in common. Their hearts were not right with God. They looked so good on the outside, but their hearts were full of poison. And it was only a matter of time before their hearts came out with rebellion. All that secret rebellion needs is an opportunity to reveal itself. There's a saying that I like, which I think captures just this. Time and truth go together. Time and truth go together. Who you are on the inside will eventually come out on the outside. It's only a matter of time. You think, how could Judas have possibly let this sin get this far? This is what happens when secret sin goes unchecked in the heart. This is what happens when secret sin is harbored in the heart. It longs to come out. It seeks and waits and watches for an opportunity. All that secret sin needs is an opportunity to reveal itself. The adulterous heart watches and waits and plans for that opportunity to steal that glance or to talk to that someone that you're being tempted by. The bitter, unforgiving heart jumps at the first opportunity it gets to speak a destructive word because it's been waiting so long. The gossiping heart waits and watch, watches for somebody else to bring something up just so you can chime in and really get going. All that secret sin needs is an opportunity to reveal itself. So I ask you this morning, brethren, who are you really? Who are you really? Forget who you are on the outside. Who are you on the inside? God sees. God knows. Proverbs 5.21 says, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. God sees. Sinners try to hide from the light, but you can't hide from God. Friends, do you know in your heart of hearts that you have been leading a double life? Do you know in your heart of hearts that who you are on the inside is not the same as who you are on the outside? Listen, who you are when you're alone is who you really are. Who you are when you're alone is who you really are in your heart of hearts. William Temple says, religion is what you do with your solitude. What are you doing with your solitude? What are you doing when you're by yourself? What entertains your mind? What preoccupies you? 
What are you doing in the secret of your own home, in the secret of your own closet, in the secret of your own heart? That's who you really are. What preoccupies you, what entertains you, what fills your mind when no one else is looking, what you do when no one else is looking, that is your religion. That is your object of worship. That is your idol. That is your God. Who you are is who you, who you are when you're alone is who you really are. So brothers and sisters, don't let secret sin go unchecked. Don't let secret sin take a foothold in your heart. Don't feed secret sin. Starve it. Starve it out. Stamp it out. You may think it is small, but your secret sin is seeking to devour you. Your secret sin is seeking to destroy your life. Brethren, destroy your secret sin before it destroys you. Thankfully, rebellion is not all that we see in this story. Secondly, we see the climax of devotion. The climax of devotion. Look at verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now against the backdrop of the chief priests and scribes and Judas who were having their secret meeting, Mark tells us that there is another meeting. This time, it's a gathering of friends. So picture with me, you're walking around on Saturday night on the dusty roads of Bethany in Israel. You've got nothing to do. And all of a sudden, you hear a chime on your new iPhone. I don't even know what number we're on. Your iPhone 15S. And look, it's an Evite. There's a party at the house of Simon the leper. So we go over to the house of Simon the leper, and as you walk through the door, you see all 12 apostles. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Simon, and Jesus. The atmosphere is merry, it's joyful, it's celebratory. Over here, you can imagine James and John and Matthew, they're talking and laughing. And Lazarus and Andrew over here, they're sharing stories about that one time that Jesus did that thing. And you see Peter, and he's stating profound theological truths and then putting his foot in his mouth. And then there's Judas. Do you think Judas is off in some corner, wringing his hands, shifty eyes, looking suspicious? Do you think Judas has one of those long, dark, curly mustaches, where he wears a hood, he wears eyeshadow, and he speaks with a British accent like all the bad guys in the movies, even though he's Hebrew? <laughs> no. Judas does not stand out at all. He looks exactly like the rest of them. This story is here to emphasize his treachery. He's one of the 12. And as you pan around the room, finally you spot him, reclining at the table, Jesus Christ, the Savior himself. But all of a sudden, at the far end of the room, a woman emerges. Her eyes are full of joy and gratitude. They're fixated on Jesus. She can't even take her eyes off of him. And look, she's holding something in her hands. She's grasping it very tightly. It's an alabaster flask, a vial. 
She's grasping onto it very, very dearly because it must be extremely precious to her. So she starts walking, first hesitantly, then confidently. She stops behind Jesus, takes the flask, breaks it at its neck, and begins to pour out the liquid onto Jesus' head. And as soon as she starts to pour out the liquid, your nose is immediately filled with an exquisite fragrance, a delightful, sweet aroma. And she pours all of it out to the very last drop. And then you hear some gasps and whispers around the room. Verses 4 and 5, some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. You see, inside this flask, inside this alabaster vial, was a very costly perfume of pure nard. Nard was a very expensive ointment, which is extracted from the root of an herbal plant native only to India. Now, it was so expensive because, as you can imagine, it was so difficult to get. To get this plant, you had to go up into the Himalaya mountains near China and Tibet, dig it out, put it on the backs of camels, and bring it all the way to Israel. It was so costly that it was worth 300 denarii, the equivalent of an entire year's income. Now contrast that with 30 pieces of silver, five weeks' worth of income. This was her all. This was her best. This would have been her life savings. This would have been what was most precious to her. And yet she joyfully, sacrificially, lovingly gave it up to worship the Savior in an act of climactic devotion. So brothers and sisters, have you freely, joyfully, sacrificially given up what is most precious to you, to God? Have you surrendered all? Maybe it's your material possessions. Maybe it's your bank account, house. Maybe it's someone you love more than you love Jesus. Maybe it's your hopes, your dreams, your passions, your time. Or maybe it's not your hopes and dreams. Maybe it's the hopes and dreams that you have for your children. Oh, believer, give it up to Jesus. Give up to Jesus your first fruits. Don't give him your leftovers. Oh, Christians, give over to Jesus what is most precious to you because no sacrifice is too great for him. Tim Keller tells a story of 1 Samuel 15 to illustrate handing over to God everything. You know the story well. God tells King Saul, to kill the Amalekites and all of their livestock. Kill the sheep, kill the oxen, kill everything. But of course, Saul refuses. And so Samuel, he goes to Saul and he says, Saul, why have you disobeyed God? And Saul says, well, well, uh, I was thinking that I would offer up the sheep as a sacrifice to God, of course. And Samuel says, behold, To obey is better than sacrifice. The point is, Saul, you've missed the point. Oh, Saul, God didn't want the sheep. 
God wanted to see if you would give him the sheep. God didn't want the sheep. God wanted you. And by not giving up the sheep to God, you're not giving up yourself. By keeping the sheep to yourself, you're keeping yourself from God. God didn't want the sacrifice, Saul. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. By not giving up the sheep to God, you're not giving yourself over to God. By keeping the sheep, you kept yourself. Brothers and sisters, whatever you are holding back from God, give it up. Give it up. Don't keep yourself from God by keeping your treasure to yourself. By handing over your greatest treasure to him, you tell him that you are giving him yourself. You tell him that he is your greatest treasure. But the disciples, they don't get this. Jesus has to set them straight. Verse 6, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The disciples judge by appearances. What a waste. Jesus judges by motive. What a beautiful sacrifice. For man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And then verses 7 and 8. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Caring for the poor is a good ministry. It's a great ministry. But we ought not to make the good the enemy of the best. The worship of God. Worship should be our priority, not ministry. Complete devotion to God must be our priority, not ministry. Worship must be foremost. Now, yes, a heart of worship will work itself out into a lifetime of ministry. But brethren, don't minister for the sake of ministry. Minister for the sake of worship. Have you ever thought that ministry is just work? Ministry is just work. Now, don't get me wrong. Ministry is work. We must exert ourselves. We must labor for Christ. But it should never be just work. Ministry ought always to be more than just work. Ministry ought to be worship. A.W. Tozer says, God wants worshipers before workers. Indeed, the only acceptable workers are those who have learned the lost art of worship. This woman is well acquainted with the lost art of worship. Both she and Jesus know the cross is just around the corner. He knew he was going to die. She knew he was going to die because he predicted three times in Mark 8 through 10 that he was going to, to be delivered over and killed. And in light of his impending death, this woman shows an act of foremost devotion. Her act of love prepares him for his act of love. Verse 9 says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is such a climactic act of devotion that it is eternally recorded on the pages of Scripture, never to be changed, never to be altered. This woman's deed will never be forgotten because it is found in the Gospels of the Word of God. Wherever the Gospel goes, 
this goes with it. Wherever this word goes, she goes with it. Brethren, there is a reason that this story is in the Bible. There is a reason that she is in the word of God. It is written for our benefit. It is written because we would do well to emulate her in her act of devotion. Brian Chappell, in his book, Holiness by Grace, tells the story of love and lost love. She took her children to the park to break the monotony of school children now homebound for the summer. And instead, she broke her own heart. She had watched her children run to the playground equipment as another car drove into the parking lot. The new car ground to a quick stop. A young, attractive woman with a beaming smile leaped out of the seat and virtually skipped to a secluded picnic table near an adjoining lake. The mother's imagination began to race. Who could this young, attractive woman be meeting in such a secluded spot with so much enthusiasm? Was this a long-awaited and carefully planned rendezvous with an overbusy husband? A lunch date with a best friend or a tryst between secret lovers? She determined to stay on the lookout for whoever got out of the next car. No one else came immediately. The mother soon grew preoccupied with her children and forgot to watch for whomever the young woman was meeting. When she did finally glance again at the secluded woman, what the mother saw made her own heart hurt. The attractive young woman was reading a Bible. The person she had leapt from the car to meet with such enthusiasm was the Lord. The mother recognized with pain that penetrated her spirit that she no longer had that same enthusiasm. She did not know what it was, but she did know that she was not now the kind of person who would skip to meet him. She had lost something wonderful, and she wept. She wept there in the park for her loss. Brothers and sisters, have you lost your first love? Have you lost your first love? Have you forgotten the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Were you once on fire for God? Were you once passionate for God, burning with passion for the Savior, and now you barely have a flickering candle? Would you be one to skip to meet with him today? Our hearts should be sorrowful over our lack of love for Christ. Our hearts should break at the thought of breaking his heart. But brethren, don't stop at sorrow. Don't stop at shame. Repent. Go to the cross. Go to Christ. Run at once to be with him. He welcomes the brokenhearted. Mark 14, 1 through 11, is a story with a series of contrasts, of comparisons. We are meant to see the stark contrast between these two stories. We have two parties, one celebrating evil, the other celebrating good. 
We have two people who can't contain their true inward heart. Judas could not contain his rebellion. This woman could not contain her devotion. We have two approaches to money. Judas showed his greed. This woman showed her generosity. We have two costs. A measly 30 pieces of silver contrasted with 300 denarii. We have Judas, one of the 12, a name which will live forever infamously. And we have a nameless woman who will live forever famously. We have two acts which will never be forgotten, an act of rebellion and an act of devotion. So I ask you this morning, which path are you on? Which road are you taking? Which option are you choosing? If you're not a believer here this morning, whether you know it or not, you have a heart of rebellion towards Jesus Christ. I urge you, repent of your sins. Go to the cross. Go to Christ. Trust in him for salvation, and you will be saved. For the believers here this morning, I just have one last question before we close. Who is this woman? Who is this woman? Who is this nameless, anonymous woman? It is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. John 12.3 says that it was Mary who took a pound of expensive ointment. It was Mary who anointed the head of Jesus. It was Mary who was performing this act of climactic devotion. It was Mary. But why have I waited so long to tell you that it was Mary? Because Mark never even tells us. Her name never even comes up in this passage. The emphasis is not on Mary. The emphasis is on her act of worship. The point of keeping her anonymous, the point of keeping her nameless, is that this could be any of us. This should be any of us. This could be all of us. This could be all of us. This sort of worship should mark all of us, brothers and sisters. And if not, why not? I pray that everyone here this morning would be like this woman, a believer whose name and renown is secondary, but whose love and devotion to Christ is primary. Let us pray. Father who is in heaven, Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy of love, sacrifice. He is worthy to give over everything, our all, our best. So Lord, as we think about these two stark contrasts, help us, Lord, to devote our lives unto him to walk in your ways, to go to the ground and to weep to the praise of the mercy that we have found. Thank you, Lord, for the love of Jesus. Help us to give more love to him. We pray in his precious name. Amen.